Verse 11, Paul through the Spirit writes, In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God and in Christ Jesus. And therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but w- rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under the law, but you are under grace. Let's pray. God, may we as a church count ourselves dead to the enslaving power of sin. And may we recognize and realize that we are alive in Christ. God, I pray that we would not let sin reign in our bodies, that we wouldn't be um, seeking to obey its evil desires. God, keep us from using our bodies as instruments of wickedness. And instead, God, give us a vision for holiness and your righteousness that is compelling. Help us to hunger and thirst for that righteousness and to see our whole lives as an opportunity to be used to bless you and to bless other people. I love this passage, God. I love that it doesn't allow us to separate our quote-unquote souls or spirits from our bodies. And you're interested in our soul and spirits, but we can do whatever we want with our bodies. Like, no, all of who we are belongs to you. And we want to acknowledge that this morning and say, God, would you empower us by your spirit so that we would use, we, you would use us holistically to bring you glory. And to that end, God, may we use the parts of our body to love and to serve you and other people in this world. We don't want sin to be our master, God. We don't want to live fettered to the power of death and decay and disruption. So do the work in our hearts that you need to do. Bring deliverance where we need deliverance. Bring healing where we need healing. Bring challenge where we need challenge. Bring um, bring uh, hardship and suffering that is designed to cut us to the heart and cause us to repentance where that's needed, God. Fill us with joy where we need joy so that we can live under your grace and we can enjoy and move into greater Uh, freedom from ironically becoming a slave to your grace and love. We pray and ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, before Sunday school heads upstairs, you can come down to the front. We're going to continue talking about wisdom. Good to see everybody. So I asked this question last week. I'm going to ask it again because I think you guys had some really good input. How many of you made one wise decision this week? We've been talking about wisdom or what it means to make wise decisions. Can you think of one wise decision that you made this week? Not one? How many of you maybe had a fight with a sibling or a parent or a friend and then decided to try and make things right and to say you're sorry and to help get the relationship back on track. How many of you did that? That's good. That's very, very wise. That's excellent. How many of you said something kind at school to someone, maybe when it would have been easier to say something mean, but you decided in the moment to say something kind? Did anyone do that this week? 
because that would be a wise decision. Oh, awesome. And did any of you decide to maybe share a toy or a game or include someone in, in a game that's playing with you? Could be at school, could be at home. How many of you did that this week? That's a wise decision. That's awesome. And we're learning as we make more and more wise decisions, life goes better for us because God designed the world to work in a certain way. But if we lie and cheat and are mean and are rude, those are unwise decisions that pull us down into darkness in our hearts. And as we're friendly and kind and sharing and caring and learning and listening, we grow and we feel stronger and we feel better. One thing that I want to encourage you guys to do this week, and maybe your parents or grandparents can help you remember this, is every night this week, I'm going to teach you a prayer. I'd like you to pray it. James 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to anyone without finding fault, and it will be given to them. The Bible says God is eager to give us wisdom. And so, here's the prayer. And this is where I really need you guys to pay attention. You can do this at night. You can do it when you're walking to school. You can do it when you're playing at recess. Whenever it comes to your mind, I want you to pray, God, please give me wisdom. That's it. God, please give me wisdom. But I want you to try and remember to pray that every single day this week. Because the Bible says God is so eager to give us wisdom he wants to strengthen us for the kind of life that he wants. So what is the prayer we're going to remember? God, please give me wisdom. Excellent, excellent, excellent. God, this morning and every day this week, we ask for your wisdom. Please give us your wisdom so that we can grow in you and figure out how life works best. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, thanks for listening, guys. Head upstairs. So we are in a series called Identity and Mission, and we're looking at the question, who are we and what are we doing here as a church? And what we're asking, we're moving through kind of a series of questions and themes and scriptures that hopefully are causing us to wrestle a little bit in terms of what are our theological moorings? What's our theological vision? What are we pursuing as a church? What should we be pursuing as a church? Because there's a lot of directions that we can go. So what should we be prioritizing, not just now, but maybe in the next three to five years, to ensure that we are growing deeper in Christ and we are going further in God's mission? And I've talked the last few weeks about how the biblical story of creation, fall, redemption, and then ultimately new creation in a renewed heaven and earth, that commits us and compels us as a church to be at least defined by four features. We want to be biblical, we want to be devotional, we want to be connectional, and we want to be missional. Biblical means we want to understand and recognize and live out of the centrality of God's word and the authority of God's word. Devotional means we don't just want to read the Bible to accumulate knowledge, but to strengthen a lived relationship with Jesus so that our hearts are devoted to God. Because it is very possible to know a lot of religious or Bible right answers, but have your heart be cold to God. So we want to be cultivating a deep, a spirituality of depth in Christ. And we want to be connectional. We want to learn how to connect with each other and how to bear each other's burdens and to 
uh, encourage one another and to challenge one another. On the back table there, there's a little sign-up sheet. So if you're interested this year in finding a place for you to get connected, whether it's a 3-2-1 group, which are groups of three people that meet for two hours once a month, or maybe a, a conventional small group or one of our Bible studies that will pop up over the course of the year, make sure you sign up for those after the service. We need to be connecting with each other, not just having Sunday be the time that we gather and kind of say hi and exchange some pleasantries, but to make sure that we're pushing ourselves to build relationships through the week. And we want to be missional. We don't want to be lulled into a place of being satisfied with the fact that, yeah, Sunday's going well and we've got money in the bank and people generally seem to be doing well, so that's great. Like there's a mission to be a part of. God has a mission to us, and then God has a mission through us into the world. And so we need to be challenging ourselves to say, where is God calling us to love and serve our neighbor, especially as a church? Update on the school district eight school supply packs. Um, You guys are ridiculous. So here's the thing. Last time we announced it, it was like $7,200 that we're supplying to six schools. The final tally is over 10,000. So I had to send, not had to, I got to, send three more emails to Redfish, Brent Kennedy, and Salmo's principal and say, hey, we've got like an extra $3,600 that came in, so there you go. You guys can take advantage of this too. And they were just like, what? That's amazing. So that's awesome just as a general thing. And if nothing else came from that, amazing. God's going to use that. But then I got a phone call from someone in school district eight who said, hey, I am responsible for capturing and reporting on good news stories that happen in and through the district. And one of the principals of these schools pushed your email to me and they wanted me to follow up. And so uh, Eden DuPont and I had an interview for about 20 minutes or 25 minutes this week. And then I think they want to bring me and a representative or someone and get a picture taken with uh, the superintendent of SB8 as a way to say, this is really amazing. And I think that's something that we can and should celebrate. Jesus says, you're the light of the world. We don't hide a light under a basket. Um, What we do is we um, allow as God sees fit people to see our good works and to glorify God. And I know in some Christian circles that can feel a little bit weird because that can sound self-promotional, and didn't Jesus say, you know, give so that one hand doesn't know what the other hand is doing? And I would say, yeah, on the personal level, it's very important not to toot our own horn. But when God does something that no one person can get the credit for, and they're saying, wow, thank you, Nelson Evangelical Covenant Church, we can say, yeah, praise God, that was amazing. God put that on our hearts and we responded. And so let's have a round of applause. I think it's an amazing... um, Yeah, God is just going to use that in ways that we can't imagine and continue to use it over the year as more families find out that our church did this and Nelson's a small town, one or two degrees of separation. And when Eden said, what kind of prompted this? I just said, well, I just think honestly our church is always on the lookout for ways to bless and serve their community. That's important to us as a church. We think that's what it means to, part of what it means to follow Jesus. And this is an opportunity that so many people in our church just said yes. And so... I was super encouraged by that, and I hope you are too. Okay, this morning I want to explore 
historical event that shapes how we understand our identity and mission as it relates to the fact that we are an evangelical covenant church. So as an evangelical covenant church, we are part of a denomination, the evangelical covenant church. And then under that, in Canada, it's the evangelical covenant church of Canada. Now the word denomination, I understand, depending on your church background, that can be freighted with all kinds of associations and meanings can be very difficult for some people. Some people see denominations as sort of these cluster of churches that's just nothing but a big bureaucratic layers of mess and not really needed anymore. Some people reject the idea of denominations because it's not something that they would say is specifically taught in scripture. The word denomination isn't used there. It's sort of a more modern development. But One of the ways the covenant church encourages people to think about our denomination is that you see in the Bible, God clusters certain groups of people together at different times for his purposes, right? Whether it's uh, certain tribes in Israel in the Old Testament, and then in the New Testament, there are certain clusters of groups that meet in and around Ephesus or in different places. We see God clustering people together so that in a way that they couldn't just do on their own, they are advancing deeper in Christ and further in mission together. And so the evangelical covenant denomination really encourages people to think of denominations, uh, or at least our denomination, as a group of local churches who are collectively trying to work together to further God's mission in the world. And the way they're doing that is by supporting each other and challenging each other, inspiring each other through a... through a shared theological vision, a vision that says this is who we believe God to be, this is what we believe God's priorities are, this is the direction that we're heading. And then as we'll find out in the coming weeks, also giving lots of freedom for individual churches under that big vision to say, this is the particular expression that we think we're being called to. The Covenant Church isn't a denomination that tries to, from the top down, define everything, but to kind of set the broad agenda and goals and then to allow individual churches and their leadership to move forward in mission. And so understanding who we are as a church, as Nelson Evangelical Covenant Church, is really, really important because being part of a denomination commits you to certain things. And there are things that being evangelical and covenant, there are things that uh, being uh, ECOV commits you to that are distinct from other Christian denominations. There are some things that are really unique about being a covenant church. Now, we're going to get to those distinctives next week. But what I said, uh, what I said a moment ago today, what I want to do is I want to look at one particular historical event that is part of our spiritual DNA as a covenant church. And we don't want to just start the conversation with, oh, we're an evangelical covenant church. This is what it means, because there's a really, really important historical event that has to be understood as very foundational to understanding our identity and our mission. Now today, I've called my message the high five as a clue to this event. Oh, Dan, you spoiled it. I was going to ask them what they thought it was. Oh, it pierced my heart. I worked all week on that buildup. Anyways, okay, we're going to talk about the Protestant Reformation. But I called it high fives because there were five big ideas that came out of the Protestant Reformation that shaped and challenged and directed the mission of what would become known as Protestant churches, of which the Covenant Church is a part. And so you can't understand who we are as a covenant uh, church without understanding 
what it means to be part of the Protestant Reformation. Now, I didn't want to go through a whole history lecture of the Protestant Reformation, so I found a really fun video that was produced by the BBC a few years ago, and it does a pretty solid job in about four minutes of kind of giving you the zero to 40 miles an hour overview, so we'll watch that now. A most precise and nuanced look into the life of the man, legend and visionary, Martin Luther. Sir. One day, when Luther is 21 years old, he experiences something which will affect him for the rest of his life. Suddenly, a thunderstorm erupts, a wild, violent one. not going to work, Dan. I can do a historical overview of the Protestant Reformation. Oh, we got it. There we go. Thanks, but no thanks, Dan. A most precise and nuanced look into the life of the man, legend, and visionary, Martin Luther. Sir. One day, when Luther is 21 years old, he experiences something which will affect him for the rest of his life. Suddenly, a thunderstorm erupts, a wild, violent one. Luther is terrified of being struck by lightning and dying, because all his life he has been told that he must earn a place in heaven when he dies, and he doesn't think he has done that quite yet. So he falls to his knees to pray, not to God, but to Saint Anna, so that she might ask God to look after him. And Luther promised that if God would see him safely through the thunderstorm, he would offer the rest of his life to God by becoming a monk. Luther cannot understand it if God's intention is really for poor people to spend all their money buying their way out of punishment so they can go to heaven. And why should it be easier for the rich to avoid a long time in purgatory than it is for the poor? He thinks it's way too much about money and too little about God. When priests sell letters of indulgence with slogans such as, When the coin in the coffer clings, the soul from purgatory springs. Luther wants to discuss this with other monks and priests, so he writes 95 theses and nails them to the church door in Wittenberg where he lives. The church door, you see, acts as a form of bulletin board and is a completely normal way to put things up for debate. Luther is allowed to defend himself at a trial in the city of Worms. 
The church hopes that Luther will withdraw what he said and wrote so that everything can return to normal. But Luther will not. He maintains that if no one can prove him wrong through arguments or quotes from the Bible, he must be right. I cannot, and I will not regret what I have said. I cannot act against my conscience, Luther says. Not many in the audience have heard the word conscience before, but they are in no doubt as to whether Luther stands firm on his beliefs or not. As a result, they declare him an outlaw. This means that anyone now has a duty to catch him and hand him over to the authorities. After Luther has been outlawed, he is forced to hide. He hides with his friend, Elector Frederick's castle, Wartburg. Up until then, the Bible has only existed in Greek and Latin. While hiding at Wartburg, Luther translates the entire New Testament into German. Luther wants people to have the opportunity to read the Bible in their own language, so they do not depend on the priests and the church's interpretation because Luther sees the Bible as God speaking to all people. When people get access to reading the Bible themselves, they also begin to use the words of the Bible as an argument for all sorts of things. Luther has started something he cannot control. His new thoughts are used as arguments in the power struggles of princes, in revolts, and in the struggle between kings, princes, and the Pope about who actually decides what. Soon, everyone is quarreling and fighting. Some even go to war. Luther had dreamt about changing the church, he knew. But his thoughts ended up splitting the church in two, the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. And that soon becomes important for many other things than the church. So that's a real brief overview. And as this protest designed to reform the church, that's why it's called Protestant Reformation, some of you are like, oh, it all makes sense now. This protest to reform, at the time, the Roman Catholic Church, as it gets organized and there's a split, and now there's this entire new group of churches that say we are protesting and we stand in line with Luther, there comes to be five statements, five solas. And sola is a Latin word that means alone or only. And there are these five statements that all get embraced by any Protestant church as a central call to their identity and mission in defiance of the Roman Catholic Church which they saw as being completely corrupt, wandering way too far away from what the Bible actually teaches and allowing church tradition and the power of the Pope, uh, there's too much power invested in those things. And so these were groupings of churches, probably not fair to call it a, a denomination, but they were groups of churches that said, we want to define ourselves differently and we want to get back to the Bible and back to the pure Christian faith, not obscured by the institutional religion of the Roman Catholic Church. So these five solas of the Reformation 
formed the backbone of what would become the Protestant church movement of which the Evangelical Covenant Church eventually emerges about 200 years later. So it's really important to understand the Protestant Reformation and these five solas because they are kind of a really important soil out of which eventually the Evangelical Covenant Church is going to emerge and to say we stand in line with those churches that protested. We can affirm these solas. So the first sola, going to learn some Latin this morning, the first sola is sola scriptura, which means scripture alone or scripture only. Right? This was an affirmation that only the Bible is inspired by God, only the Bible is God-breathed, and therefore only the Bible is authoritative in matters of faith, doctrine, and conduct. So this was, let me just insert here because there can be some misleading understandings here. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone, does not mean only the Bible matters, no other books or ideas matter. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean only the Bible is the source for wisdom and knowledge. Reformers never thought that. Protestants always said you can find wisdom and knowledge in other books from other people. That's why conversations are important. That's why it's important to read books. It doesn't mean only the Bible is useful. It meant only the Bible was ultimately authoritative, capital A. All other knowledge had to be read in light of the Bible. We don't read the Bible in light of our own worldview. We challenge ourselves to understand and amend our worldview in light of the Bible. First, or sorry, 2 Peter 1, 20, 21 says, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy, and that can mean teaching of Scripture, came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This document, although it clearly bears evidence that there's a human dimension to it, it's not essentially a human document. It's not bottom-up. It's not man's ideas about God. It is God's revelation. 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, I'm going to invite you into some interaction this morning. Right? Sometimes it's a little bit risky, but why would that sola be important? Either for, maybe, and think specifically in terms of Luther's time, if you know anything about, uh, or you picked that up from the video, why would it be important to say Scripture alone is the ultimate authority and it's the authority over all other things? Why would that be important to affirm that? What's that? Totally. So at the time, there was a tremendous amount of almost capital A authority invested in the church's general teaching through the Pope. So the church at the time didn't say scripture wasn't important, but they just said it's very important and it's all, it's kind of on, co it's on equal footing with what the Pope teaches and what church tradition teaches. So it's like scripture and the Pope and church tradition, those are all authoritative, which you run into a problem because what if the Pope starts saying and teaching things that people can't find in the Bible? Who has to give? And part of what the Protestants did is they said, well, it seems like they're making the Bible give on what the Pope is saying. And that's not the way it should be. We can value maybe the Pope's teaching or the, the teaching of pastors and ministers or the church as long as those teachings come under the authority of Scripture and are allowed to be critiqued. 
So it's really important at that time because people believe an equal, equal authority was invested in the Pope and church tradition and in Scripture. And sola scriptura was a way to say, no, Scripture alone is authoritative. All other sources of knowledge, even knowledge coming from very esteemed and smart and, and, and biblically knowledgeable people, those are still under the authority of God's word. The next is sola fide, which is faith alone. And this solo, sorry, this sola emphasized how we are saved. It said we are saved or justified before God. How does a sinner, how does someone who on their fundamental uh, posture of their heart is one of rejecting or ignoring God, how does a sinner like that be brought back into, and how does a, back into relationship with God, how does a redeemed, salvific deliverance from sin and death happen? Like, what's the mechanism? And the reformers said, it's faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not by works so that no one can boast. And so the reformers said, we don't contribute anything to our salvation. It's by faith we're saved. Now, why would this be important and so important that they highlighted it and pressed it forward and said, it's by faith alone. Faith alone is the mechanism of salvation. Obviously, they may, they're going to go to Ephesians 2 and say it's clearly taught in the Bible, but why was it important at that time? Carl? Yeah, there was all kinds of different ways to achieve salvation because the church's equation for salvation was faith and something else secured your salvation. So on the most broadest level, faith and works, meaning your good deeds, your religious performance, your participation in the sacraments, that along with your faith in Jesus, that secured your salvation and deliverance. And then eventually, you, you're getting into all kinds of other, they, I don't think they were considered uh, sacraments, but other um, beneficial, well, let me, I'll touch on the indulgence was indulgences in the next one, because it has a little bit more to do um, with surrogatio. But the reformer said, it's faith alone in Christ that saves. It's, it says right here in the Bible, it's not by works so that no one could boast. How we're saved isn't God did a little bit. I, I, I supplied the rest. And so God saved me because of things that I brought to the table. No, we're saved by grace through faith. It's not from ourselves. And so that, that was very threatening to the church though, right? Because if you're the church and you say, faith in Jesus, totally important. But you know what else is important? Weekly attendance at church. You know what else is important? Tithing. You know what else is important? And I just start listing through all these levels of control that I can threaten you with and I can leverage because you need what I have as a religious authority if faith in Jesus isn't enough. See, if faith in Jesus is enough, but now, ooh, the balance of power shifted quite a bit. Because now my role doesn't become one of being able to leverage power over you, but my only value in the kingdom becomes about serving you and helping you pursue Jesus. So this was a huge threat to the church, to be able to say, you could be saved and delivered from your sin, 
by simply trusting in Christ and what he's accomplished on the cross through his life, death, and resurrection for you. Really, really important. The next one was solo gratia, grace alone. This emphasizes grace as the reason for our salvation. Why did God, why did God save Jeff Strong? Like, what was the prompt? Was it the fact that God looked into my heart and saw kind of the potential of what I could become if he saved me? And that's why he saved me? Was it because of some kind of religious heritage that I was a part of? Was it because of part of my ethnicity? Or was, was it because I was part of a certain class of people? Maybe I was part of nobility. And so the idea was that God's grace or favor rests on me because of birthright. Well, these were all different ideas that people had at the time. And the reformers said, no, it's by grace alone that you have been saved. We just read it in Ephesians. It's by grace you have been saved. It's simply because God chose to love you. There was no prompt, right? It's just a total gift from God. It's not based on your religious behavior or your ethnicity or your intelligence or your behavior or your biblical or religious knowledge. No one has a claim on the grace of God. God just loves from who God is and is gracious. Ephesians 1.7 In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Not in accordance with our nobility, in accordance with our religious performance, in accordance with all this other stuff. The reason why we have God's grace in our lives is because God simply chose to love us, right? Deuteronomy 7, 7. God didn't choose you, Israel, because you were mighty among the nations and you were, you were hot stuff. I chose you. I loved you because I loved you. It's just grace. And that ties into the indulgences thing because the church was saying, oh, there is a way that you can activate God's grace in a special way in people's lives who have gone on into death and aren't, haven't been fully purified yet because the idea was that uh, uh, Christ's sacrifice wasn't, couldn't totally uh, satisfy the need for spiritual purification. So you had to be kind of held. You weren't in hell, but you were in a place of purification so that your sinfulness could burn off a little bit called purgatory. And, uh, but you as a living relative can activate God's grace in that space by purchasing indulgences. So if you give the church money, that'll expedite that person's time in purgatory. It'll reduce it. And Luther and other reformers said, that's a terrible, terrible uh, blasphemous heresy because the Bible doesn't teach it. We don't do anything to activate God's grace in our life. God is gracious towards us because of who God is, not because of who we are or anything that we've done. Very, very important. And again, very, very threatening to the church to suggest that just because you are very religious or you come from a line of bishops or, or even someone like the Pope doesn't have a special claim on the grace of God any more than the farm boy or girl who is living in abject poverty. Equally, God loves and is gracious in equal measure towards both in offering salvation and deliverance to both. It's very hard for us to understand just how challenging and threatening that was to the Roman Catholic Church. Fourth sola, solo Christos, Christ alone. This sola emphasizes the role of Jesus in salvation. Christ alone saves. There is no other mediating force. There's no other mediating per, uh, person or groups of people. 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. Acts 4.12, 
Salvation is found in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. John 14, 6, this is Jesus speaking directly. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, why was this important to emphasize in Luther's time that it was Christ alone who saved? Does anyone know why it was so important? Who is the competing mediator between a holy and righteous God and sinful humanities? The priest or the church? Back in the day, I would have been the bridge. You can't come to God directly. You need me to be a mediator because I'm at a different spiritual level than you because of my station, my office, my title, you fill in the blank. I have a different kind of access to God. And if you listen to what I say, I can act as a mediator, right? So this is where the idea of confession comes in. You confess your sins to a priest, and then they pass it on to God. And the reformers looked at this and said, that's not true. I mean, there might be a role for priests and, and pastors and stuff, but it's not to act as a mediator between the average person and God. People can go directly to God because of what Jesus has done. That's part of the implications of the good news. You don't need an institution or a religious authority figure to act as the middleman between you and your relationship with God. Jesus is that mediator. And again, that was revolutionary because it allowed everyone to, to kind of break through this glass ceiling of, well, right, um, Obviously, priests and like the higher ups, they have a red line to God, and like they're super close to God. But we're, I'm, I'm just a regular, regular Christian. So there's just a limit to my ability to access God. And when the reformers read the scriptures in the New Testament and the pastoral letters that talked about the implications of the resurrection, they said, that is not true at all. This is being used to control us. This is a twisting of what scripture says that anybody can go to Christ and be saved and delivered and sustain that life in Christ without needing the church or the sacraments of the church or particular religious leaders to act as a go-between. It is so exciting for people to discover this truth in Scripture. And the last one that is sort of a summation to all of it is sole dio gloria, to the glory of God alone. That was the fifth sola. The previous four kind of stacked together and then this is the concluding one, right? Because every single, all the previous four solas emphasize that God's doing all the work. God is the one. God's grace, and it's simply by putting faith in what God has done, and God's revealed his plan, and it's totally accessible to anybody. It's by grace you have been saved. God's the one that should get all the credit. And therefore, if you're a Christian and you've come to faith, it's because God has been gracious to you. It's not works. You can't boast. You can't say, yeah, like, I don't like to brag, but God took me. I, th I think we know why, but you can fill in blank, right? It's not like that. You can't do that. No one can boast. There has to be complete humility. And then when you realize that, the response should be, well, if this spiritual inheritance that I now have in and through Jesus that affects this life, and then continues on forever is because of grace. 
how good and how amazing is God? How glorious is he? And therefore, I owe him my life. All of it. Again, not just my soul or a little part of me, like we read in Romans, my whole body, everything. I'm to look at my entire life as a way through which to glorify God and to serve my neighbor. And I might not understand what that means in its totality and its height and breadth, but I am called to go on that journey. I want to live for the glory of God alone. Romans 11.36 says, For in him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And so the Protestant said, we want to be a group of churches that at the end of the day, we're focused on bringing glory to God. Everything is from him and through him and to him. He's the point of everything. So we should be seeking to glorify him in all that we do in ways big and small. That's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink, right, even in like the little normal everyday stuff of life, do it all for the glory of God. Figure out what that means. What does it look like to eat and drink for the glory of God, to go to school for the glory of God, to do accounting for the glory of God, to show up to church and to engage as the church to the glory of God, to play sports to the glory of God, to uh, express uh, sexuality within marriage to the glory of God, to use your finances for the glory of God. Protestant churches have been chasing down that vision for hundreds of years. Why is it important to say at the end of the day, everything is about the glory of God? Why would that, why would that have been important? Who, what would have been the glory hog that would have been trying to say, yeah, God gets some glory, but it should also put some over here? I think I heard it over here. Anyone say it? Again, it's a church. The church are certain special people, super apostles, uh, religious celebrities, the Pope in Luther's day. Right? This soul is really important because it keeps our focus on God and not on, maybe they are very gifted Christian leaders, men and women, or the, at that time, the institutional church. No, it's about God. And the call of our lives is as individuals, as couples, as families, as friends, as a church, is how can we best glorify God given where we are and the resources that God has given us? Right? It guards against the idolatry of saying, well, God saved me, and the point of my life is now to live my best life now. And God helps me, right? That, that's, a, that's a slight, that's a not-so-subtle perversion, which kind of sounds kind of trite, because didn't Jesus say that I've come, that people have life and have it abundantly? Yes. But the way you, act, the way you lean into abundant life is to, in all things, seek to glorify God and take your eyes off of yourself and say, I want to please and honor God. And so it keeps us from the subtle idolatry, even today, of saying, well, the point of me becoming a Christian is God's supposed to facilitate my goals and ambitions. And then if he doesn't, I'll live out of resentment because what was the point? Well, the point is all things are from him and through him and to him. And so therefore, whether or not God, by his grace, decides to advance your agenda that you have for your life or your goals, it might be very, very good and noble. But whether he does or not, you still have a broader vision beyond the pursuit of those goals, which is whether I have plenty or very little, whether these plans pan out or not, in sickness and in health, I seek to glorify God. So these five solas, scriptura, fide, gratia, Christo, and dear gloria, scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, those are part of our DNA 
as an evangelical covenant church. And so whatever we picture for the future for our church and the kind of impact that we want to have, it has to be informed by these five statements. As a Protestant church, we should protest against any movement or theology or church or leader who pushes back against even one of these things. Because these are truths that are clearly taught in Scripture and protect the church from being manipulated by um, maybe well-intended but often evil and malicious and wicked uh, religious authority figures. I really wrestled with how to close this message. And I think where I kind of settled was I want to call you to embrace and reflect on these five solas. These are now old paths. At the time, they were cutting edge and revolutionary on one level. They came out of nowhere. Um, to many people who had heard them for the first time. But to us now, they're old paths. And we live in a society where we are taught in different ways to associate old with outdated, new with improved. And it's very important as Christians that while we recognize there are very, very um, innovative and creative and awesome ideas which are novel through which we can express the gospel or advance the gospel, the truths of the gospel uh, aren't new and they can't really be improved upon. What we have to do with each generation is to go back into the core truths of biblical teaching and then to kind of wrestle with it and say, wow, how do I bring those truths into my life in 2019 now? Right? These are old paths that can keep us in freedom and keep us liberated in Christ. They can free us from the bondage of believing that God's Salvation and love and deliverance is dependent upon our spiritual performance. And it, they can keep us liberated in light of the gospel truth to bring God and not the church and not pastors and not popes and not higher-ups, but to bring God all the glory as we seek to every day honor him in all things, starting now and then continuing forever. So let that be a call and summon for your heart to just review these and to say, God, where do you need to do the work of my heart to solidify and cement these truths deep into my kind of convictional muscle? Let's pray. God, I give you thanks for revealing these things in a fresh way to Martin Luther and to the reformers that uh, grappled with those truths and took huge risks. Many of them lost their lives in horrific ways in order to advance these truths. God, may you just burn these truths deep into our hearts. Even if we don't understand the full implications, may they become and continue to be formative for us as Nelson Evangelical Covenant Church. We want to acknowledge and recognize that from you and through you and to you are all things. You are the, you are the point of reality, God. And to you be all honor and all glory now and forevermore. Help us to live lives that increasingly align to that affirmation. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Mike. Please stand for our response.